Yeah, when I became a Christian, I couldn't believe how shockingly little there is in Scripture about Satan, because so much of what she wrote was detailing his thoughts even. When you go back and you read her story of origins in the war in heaven, you can find all kinds of information about what he was thinking and feeling. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. We have made it to Fundamental Belief 27. Can you hear me breathing? (laughs) One more week. Oh, so this week we're looking at the Adventist doctrine on the millennium and the end of sin. And I want to begin this episode by saying that many believers have different interpretations on the events surrounding the return of Christ, usually related to their particular hermeneutic or their faith tradition. Even within Life Assurance Ministries, there's variation in interpretation on these matters. But this fact does not hinder our fellowship in Christ or our love for one another. As we discuss these issues, we expect that among our listeners, people will vary in their beliefs, and we can't begin without saying that while we may all see these things slightly differently, we know that born-again people are in the family of Christ and saved by Jesus Christ alone, by grace, through faith. Also, I think it's important to mention here that while many Christian churches do explain their interpretations of eschatology in their What We Believe section, on their web pages or printed materials, true Christians don't make these interpretations a test of salvation. These details are often shared to let people know what will be taught from the pulpit and from other church leaders and teachers throughout their ministries. While Christians know all believers are in the body of Christ, they also understand that there are various matters that make fellowshipping in different groups a better fit for people. Now, this is simply not the case in Adventism. As we look at this fundamental belief, remember that Seventh-day Adventists claim to be the remnant of Revelation 14, God's last faithful people. They believe they're tasked with the job of vindicating God and giving the world secret details related to last day events, which will determine the eternal destiny of all who hear. They claim to have secret knowledge of what the mark of the beast is and how to avoid receiving it. Because of their last day prophetess sent to lead the people of God through the time of trouble— They alone have the keys to unlocking the mysteries of the book of Revelation and to avoiding apostasy. We'll see as we discuss this chapter that all their interpretations of these things are married to their story of origins, which began in eternity past. And if you want a refresher on their story of origins and great controversy worldview, go listen to episodes 99, 107, and 112. But if you haven't heard any of these other episodes yet, we encourage you to go back to 99 and just work your way through to the end from there. Now, before we get started, let me remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view our online articles, sign up for weekly emails, or if you'd like to help support the work we do here with your tax-deductible gift, there is a place for you to do that there as well. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Colleen, so here's your question. (laughs) Okay. How do you see the millennium now that you're a believer? Very differently from Adventism. And I think the very fundamental primary difference is where it occurs. Adventism teaches that the millennium for the saved occurs in heaven. 
Mm-hmm. And it teaches that the wicked do not exist at that point, the wicked dead have not been raised, and that Satan is bound in the, quotes abyss of an empty earth. So earth becomes Satan's punishment, and the saved are temporarily in heaven where they're judging the wicked with Jesus. But Christianity, and it doesn't really matter that Christianity is more dispensational or more reformed or whatever. There are many, as you said, variations in the understanding of the millennium. But one thing is for sure, all Christians based on Revelation 20 believe that the millennium is on earth. The timing may vary in people's interpretations, but the place is consistent. The Bible says it's on earth, that Jesus and his people are reigning over the nations Adventism changes that and creates convoluted arguments for placing the millennium in heaven. And the reason for that is really clear as we've studied through this chapter. It is for the purpose of exalting the position of Satan as the scapegoat, his punishment, and it makes him a very visible tragic hero while the saints help Jesus finish the judgment. Mm -hmm. The entire thing is heretical, and that placement is key. How about you, Nikki? How do you see the millennium now? Well, you know, that was one of the most surprising things for me when I came out of Adventism and started reading the Bible. My understanding of the millennium completely changed. Completely. Mm -hmm. The new picture that took shape, based on what I was reading, made it so that I didn't have to throw out half of the Bible. Oh, yeah. Suddenly, all of these promises of God and all of these prophecies that exist in the Old Testament and that are referred to in the New Testament, they have, in my understanding, a future fulfillment. And so, it's exciting. I'm excited about the millennium. I have no idea what it's going to look like. It's very different Mm -hmm. from anything I ever imagined before, and Mm -hmm. so that took some getting used to. But I really like the fact that the millennium is promise-keeping. Yes, it's, I love that. It's the faithfulness of God on display. I enjoy studying the millennium, but I have to contrast it like you did with my previous understanding in Adventism. So, the Adventist millennium is vindicating God. Mm-hmm. If we've made it, we're now in heaven with Him, and He's showing us why our loved ones aren't there, <laughs> and that it's okay, He made the right decision, and we get to go, oh, yeah, you did. Okay, fine, you're fair. Yeah. So, there's that whole process happening. Very man-centered, very appeasing us. Mm-hmm. But now, the way I understand the millennium, it is God-centered. It is His promise-keeping. It is His reign. And it's uh, just so much better than the other version. It's exciting. Yeah. And it has nothing at all to do with judgment in the way we were taught it. It right. has nothing to do with probation being ended or not ended. It has nothing to do with us being part of saying, aha, that person deserves a really bad punishment. Mm-hmm. No. Jesus is the one who decides those things, and we reap the benefits of being His bride. (laughs) That's what the millennium is about now. Why don't we read this 27th fundamental belief and talk through it? Okay. For some reason, this one really is painful, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Like I said before we started recording, this feels like dead week right before finals. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of done. Yeah. Okay. So, fundamental belief number 27, the millennium and the end of sin. 
The millennium is the thousand-year reign of Christ with his saints in heaven between the first and second resurrections. During this time, the wicked dead will be judged. The earth will be utterly desolate without living human inhabitants, but occupied by Satan and his angels. (laughs) At its close, Christ with his saints and the holy city will descend from heaven to earth. The unrighteous dead will then be resurrected and with Satan and his angels will surround the city, but fire from God will consume them and cleanse the earth. The universe will thus be freed of sin and sinners forever. So, Nikki, as you look at this doctrine and compare it with what we've studied in scripture over the years, what stands out to you as problematic? Well, first of all, they have this thousand-year reign of Christ with his saints in heaven, And Revelation 20 says that they're ruling over the nations. Right. Don't you think it might be helpful to read Revelation 20, 1 to 6 now, just kind of to lay the groundwork for what we're going to talk about. Here is Revelation 20, 1 to 6, which is perhaps one of the most definitive spots in the entire Bible describing the millennium. And just think about these words meaning what the words say. Try not to think, oh, well, that means, and then insert Ellen White's interpretation. But here's what the words say. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection." Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the words of that passage don't even hint of anybody being in heaven. And when we look at that first verse, the angel is holding the key to the abyss and he has a great chain and he binds Satan and throws him into the abyss, how do we even try to get the earth out of that? And then it says that the angel covers it, seals it. So he's in this abyss so that he can't come out and deceive the nations. Who apparently are somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then if you read on when it talks about Satan being freed, it says when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Does that mean he was taken off the earth? It can't. He was taken out of the abyss. That's right. If his prison was just being on earth, how is he released from that prison? Exactly. Just by people coming back? Yeah. It doesn't add up with what they're Mm -mm. saying. And then it says, he's released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth. And it says, that he gathers them together for war, and they came upon the broad plain of the earth. 
and surrounded the camp of the saints. This is happening on earth. Yes. And by the way, the holy city has not yet descended. The camp of the saints is not the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is going to come down in Revelation 21. And it's interesting to me that this book that we're going through tries to make the point that we can't say for sure the timing. Revelation 21 is not clear about the timing of the coming of the new Jerusalem. Well, they have to try to say that because they insist that this battle that Revelation 20 is describing is describing something that's happening to the new Jerusalem that has already come down to the empty earth. It's just not in the text of Scripture. The saints have a camp, the nations are in the earth, and Satan is released to deceive them. The words mean what the words say. Then it says that fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And get this, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's an important sentence. This is is the word of God, the inerrant word of God that has just told us this torment will occur forever and ever. And the beast and the false prophet are already in that lake of fire. And we learned in Revelation 19 that they were thrown into the lake of fire when Jesus returned to the earth right before he came with the chain and chained up the devil at the beginning of Revelation 20. So, the beast and the false prophet have been in the lake of fire for a thousand years, and they're still there when Jesus throws the devil in. Hmm. So, there's so much that's just right here in the words of Scripture, in this little tiny part of Scripture, that completely exposes the Adventist doctrine as a complete heresy and a lie and an attempt to keep alive and to complete their great controversy paradigm, which is utterly false. So, we see the clear teaching of hell and eternal torment in this text. Yes. So, don't you love how they started the chapter? (laughs) They said, Throughout history, there have been those who have waxed eloquent about the horrors of hell, playing on people's fear in an attempt to bring them to worship God. But what kind of God do they portray? And in that sentence, you can't see it, but God is a lowercase g. Yeah. They make clear here that a God who punishes in hell is not their God. And so, this is like one place where I can say, we agree. Uh We have a different God. Absolutely. The insulting way they wrote, what kind of God do they portray? This is an example like those you've mentioned frequently through this book of the Adventists telling us what Christians think Mm -hmm. and then creating a straw man argument to debunk it. Mm -hmm. Christians are not saying ever that we believe in an eternally burning hell and that we teach that to get people to love God. That's not the point of hell from a Christian's perspective. Now, I will say that sometimes there have been people who have come to an understanding of the terribleness of human sin, that the fact that our sin, as David said so eloquently, is always a 
against God and God only. Against you only have I sinned. When we realize the horror of the sin into which we're born, that our spirits are born dead and must be reborn, and that our offense is not the bad deeds we've done so much as the fact that we are dead in sin, completely dead to the Lord, and that He has to make us alive. And when we realize that, we realize that we serve a sovereign and holy God. And that realization has brought some people to say, I need a Savior, because they come to repentance with that knowledge. But this book is making a caricature of hell and the way Christians teach hell. Christians don't teach hell to try to browbeat people into fearing God. Not at all. An understanding of hell from a biblical perspective is the logical and normal result of understanding that God is sovereign, God is just, God is merciful, and hell is never used as a threat or a tool to try to bring people into obedience. You know, I found it interesting in this book, in previous chapters, that they quote Jonathan Edwards as if they agree with him. And he's a great source of authority. But they have entire courses in university where they study Jonathan Edwards' sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God. And they use him as an example of somebody who is using hell to bring people into the church because they're just afraid of God and they don't want to go to hell. Right. And the fact of the matter is... First of all, they don't agree with Jonathan Edwards. They have no business using exactly. him as a source of authority in their book. And Jonathan Edwards would absolutely not agree with their doctrines either. So that's dishonest. Mm-hmm. But second of all, too often people don't want to give the whole gospel. What are we being saved from? What does it mean to be an object of wrath? What is our eternal destiny apart from the redeeming sacrifice of Christ on our behalf? We like to leave that off and just Mm -hmm. talk about how loving Jesus is. And so, when Adventists encounter Christians who talk about the reality of hell, which we know because Jesus taught about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, they feel that browbeating because Mm -hmm. they don't believe in hell. But nobody that I know of is embellishing on and waxing eloquent about the horrors of hell. They're warning people. Yes. They're warning people, you need a Savior. Like you said, they're bringing them to know their need, and they're calling them to understand that God, in His love, sent Jesus to rescue them from that fate that He doesn't want for them. Into which we are born, John three eighteen, Ephesians 2, 3. So, for them to characterize people who believe hell is real as people who use it to terrify others into being saved, I want to say, what about your doctrine on the investigative judgment? That is terrifying. What about the Sunday law that's coming? That is terrifying. Mm -hmm. What about don't eat butter or God won't answer your prayers? Right. That's terrifying. Christians are giving the truth as taught in the Word of God. That's such a good point, Nikki. And this entire chapter is leading up to the Adventist understanding of the second death, the lake of fire. And it's coming by way of a false millennium. Once again, Adventism has taken words that are in the Bible, words that are in Scripture, and have redefined those words to come up with something that supports their story of origins, where Satan had a legitimate 
beef against God and his law, or it appeared logical. And he became jealous because God chose to exalt Jesus rather than him. And the rest is history. Satan launched the universe into a great controversy between Christ and Satan. And here we're coming near the end of this supposed controversy. And once again, the loyal Adventist believers are involved in helping Jesus win. And that's the point of this doctrine, which is so far afield from the biblical concept of the millennium that it's laughable. You know, I think one of the other issues that I kept bumping into as I read this is this is the fruit of believing that they are spiritual Israel. And so they take what I understand to be different events as I read scripture, and they mash them together and they make themselves Israel, and then they marry it to the Greek controversy. Yeah. And they come up with something so wildly different. It's hard to know how to walk step by step through each section of this chapter I to agree. discuss it. Because, first of all, different believers have different perspectives on how these things unfold. And so mm-hmm. we can't sit here and get dogmatic about one. But second of all, it's just convoluted. It is. Now, one of the things that we can say right up front is how they describe their belief in the millennium being in heaven. Now, without going into all the details, but having read the first part of Revelation 20, so you can hear what John the Revelator says, I have to point this out. In this book, the author says, after the resurrection of the righteous dead, they and the living saints are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Then Christ will fulfill the promise he made just before he left the world. I go to prepare a place for you. Then they say, Jesus described the place to which he will take his followers as my father's house, where there are many mansions or dwelling places. Here, Jesus refers to the new Jerusalem, which does not come to this earth until the end of the millennium. At the second advent then, when the righteous meet the Lord in the air, their destination is heaven, not the earth that they have just left. Christ does not establish his kingdom of glory on the earth at this time. He does that at the end of the millennium. Well, if your eyes are crossing, that's because it's confusing. But know this, they are taking some passages which are points of great hope to true believers. For example, Jesus coming in the clouds and catching up his believers. The promise that we will be raptured to be with him forever. They're taking that and working it into the Ellen White scenario. Now, here's the thing that I find so interesting about this. To try to establish as fact their notion that the millennium is in heaven, they've just articulated what I read, and then they use a footnote. Now, I think this is one of the most telling and weird things about this chapter. The footnote for this idea is from, of all things, the book, questions on doctrine. Now, if anybody listening remembers the story of questions on doctrine, you will know why that is so strange. Here's the deal. In 1957, the Adventist organization published the book Questions on Doctrine after Walter Martin met with Adventist leaders sent specifically by the General Conference to meet with him when he wanted to talk to them about their doctrines. And the General Conference handpicked the people who would talk to Walter Martin so that they could explain Adventism in a way that Walter Martin would not call them a cult. 
The end game of all of this was that these men, led by Leroy Froome, re-articulated many of the core Adventist doctrines. The proof of this is in a republished book, Questions on Doctrine, with annotations by George Knight, which came out in 2003, published by Andrews University Press. And in that set of annotations, George Knight explained that these men who talked to Walter Martin actually morphed and mulched and were dishonest with the words that they used because they knew Walter Martin would misunderstand and call them a cult. And these things that they changed in their beliefs were several things, but a primary among them were the nature of the atonement, the nature of Christ, and several other aspects of soteriology. So, with that background, in 1957, the Adventist organization published the book, Questions on Doctrine, in which it tried to articulate the general picture of Adventist beliefs. And they did this in a way with wording selected so that the Christians who were looking could be deceived into thinking that Adventists had normal Christian evangelical beliefs about the nature of Christ in the atonement. They very carefully parsed the words so that an unsuspecting reader wouldn't catch what they were really saying. But in doing this, the book split Adventism in two, in a sense. It didn't officially split them, but it created a huge schism in the organization, which actually has lasted to this day. Richard says he remembers his parents being very angry about the book Questions on Doctrine because it didn't accurately explain Adventism. But this book was presented to Walter Martin as their official document articulating Adventism. Significantly, After it was distributed and a lot of Adventists bought it, the book went out of print. And that fact actually led Walter Martin to reinvestigate Adventism later, and it led to his conversations with William Johnson on the John Ankerberg Show, in which he said, why have you let that book, Questions on Doctrine, go out of print? If you really believed what you told me in the 50s, why aren't you bringing that book back into print? And they never did. The heritage edition that was published in 2003 was not considered official because it wasn't published officially by the organization. It was a heritage edition for the universities, published at a university, so they could say it wasn't official. Isn't it interesting that in this chapter on the millennium, in the book Seventh-day Adventist Believe, which is the official explanation of Adventist doctrines, they have four different footnotes out of 16 that are from questions on doctrine. They are using questions on doctrine as the primary footnote and source for their explanation of the doctrines. And that book was never considered true Adventism. It was a face-saving device, part of the discussions with Walter Martin, that was allowed to go out of print and never actually became official. It was verbal sleight of hand. It was using words to make them think something else. And that's the book that's used as primary source material for their explanation of this millennium. I have felt so many times reading this book that they really do have a mind to the Christian who's reading the book. I agree. It's why they're quoting from Questions on Doctrine from Jonathan Edwards. They have John Calvin in here. 
they have all kinds of Christian writers in here because they're trying to present themselves as Christian, even though behind closed doors, they talk very poorly about all those same yes, Christians. That's a really good point. I thought it was interesting looking up that section in Questions and Doctrine that they use to reference this. They say, in John's view of the righteous during the thousand years, it is not specified just where the reigning with Christ takes place. <laughs> and they go on to explain how they kind of piece these different verses together to decide that that Christ and his second advent does not touch the sin-polluted earth. So, right. it's speculation. It's connect-the-dot proof texting. Mm-hmm. But then when they put it in their fundamental belief, it's a sure thing. This is going to happen in heaven, and, and here's what it's going to look like. And Ellen White said that. And it is interesting, because I did some research in Ellen White's writings. She consistently referred to the word millennium in a negative way. She used the millennium to caricature her understanding of the Christian view of millennium. She she talked about it as the unscriptural hope of a temporal millennium, and the doctrine of the millennium is a soothing potion to the sinner who does not desire to cease from sin. But when she talked about her understanding of the righteous who will be taken up to heaven, she calls it the thousand years. And she has two descriptions of the thousand years. One is of Satan on the earth, and the other is what the righteous will be doing in heaven. And here's what she said. In 1905, she wrote this about the righteous in heaven. At this time, meaning the thousand years, the righteous reign as kings and priests unto God. John in the Revelation says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. They shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. It is at this time that, as foretold by Paul, the saints shall judge the world. In union with Christ, they judge the wicked, comparing their acts with the statute book, the Bible, and deciding every case according to the deeds done in the body. Satan also and evil angels are judged by Christ and his people. So, she's saying here that the millennium is for the purpose of the saved working with Jesus to pass judgment and determine the eternal punishment of the wicked. The Bible never says that. Mm -mm. The quotes from Questions on Doctrine that are footnoted in this book don't stress, this book on the fundamental beliefs does not stress the idea that the saints are judging the wicked. Instead, the book camps on the idea that the saints are up in heaven looking at God's reasoning for not saving some people so that all the doubts that could arise in the minds of those who are saved will be answered so that they will trust God, so that his character will be vindicated, and the saints will go, oh yes, now I understand, like you said earlier, now I see why you did that. And because their questions are answered, that will ensure that sin will never rise again. It's just the book ending for that story of origins. Before God ever created the earth, Satan rebelled and said, you're not fair. And here's where we see that he is fair. It's very manipulative the way they word it, actually. They say, imagine you were in heaven and you found that one of your loved ones, whom you certainly expected to be there, was not. 
Such a case might cause you to question God's justice. And that kind of doubt lies at the very base of sin, to lay to rest forever any occasion for such doubts and to ensure that sin will never rise again. God will provide the answers to those questions during this review phase of the millennial judgment. And I want to go chapter, verse. Ellen. In fact, the Bible's really clear that God does not owe us an answer because He is sovereign. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very disturbing, just after this section on the righteous going to heaven, that they describe Satan being bound on earth as proof that he is the scapegoat. They say, similarly, Christ in the heavenly sanctuary has been ministering the benefits of his completed atonement to his people. At his return, he will redeem them and give them eternal life. When he has completed this work of redemption and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, he will place the sins of his people upon Satan, the originator and an instigator of sin. And then they refer you to chapter 24 of the book. They say in that section that it cannot be said that Satan atones for the sins of believers. But Colleen, you read a footnote. It was for fundamental belief number 24, Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And in footnote number 21, this is what the footnote said. Thus, the cycle is completed, the drama ended, only when Satan, the instigator of all sin, is finally removed, can it truly be said that sin is forever blotted out of God's universe. In this accommodated sense, we may understand that the scapegoat has a part in the atonement, Leviticus 16.10. With the righteous saved, the wicked cut off, and Satan no more, then and not till then will the universe be in a state of perfect harmony as it was originally before sin entered. And that is a quote from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary. So they say in their commentary, they say in this book that Satan has a role in the atonement. But yet in this chapter on the millennium, oh no, no, it cannot be said that Satan bears any role in the atonement. So the pattern in every chapter, even if it contradicts their same book that they're writing in is to say whatever they feel like needs to be said to, to temper criticism. Yes. And to take their eyes off of the reality of Adventist teaching, the reality of Adventist soteriology and Satan's role in it. It's very significant what Ellen White actually said about Satan as the scapegoat. <clears throat> this first little section I'm going to read from is from her book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 358. Christ's work for the redemption of men and the purification of the universe from sin will be closed by the removal of sin from the heavenly sanctuary and the placing of these sins upon Satan, who will bear the final penalty. Nikki, Jesus does that. Mm -hmm. This quote is from the Great Controversy. This is from page 658. In like manner, when the work of atonement in the heavenly sanctuary has been completed, then in the presence of God and heavenly angels and the host of the redeemed, the sins of God's people will be placed upon Satan. He will be declared guilty of all the evil he has caused them to commit. And as the scapegoat was sent away into a land not inhabited, so Satan will be banished to a desolate earth, an uninhabited and dreary wilderness. And then from the same book, page 673, 
All are punished according to their deeds. The sins of the righteous having been transferred to Satan, he is made to suffer not only for his own rebellion, but for all the sins which he has caused God's people to commit. And finally, this is from Early Writings, page 178. Satan did not then exult as he had done. He had hoped to break up the plan of salvation, but it was laid too deep. And now by the death of Christ, he knew that he himself must finally die and his kingdom given to Jesus. He held a council with his angels. He had prevailed nothing against the Son of God, and now they must increase their efforts and with their powers and cunning turn to his followers. They must prevent all whom they could from receiving the salvation purchased for them by Jesus. By so doing, Satan could still work against the government of God, and it would be for his own interest to keep from Jesus as many as possible. For the sins of those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ will at last be rolled back upon the originator of sin, and he must bear their punishment, while those who do not accept salvation through Jesus will suffer the penalty of their own sins. Nikki, how many times have you heard Gary preaching in various passages of Scripture and saying, if your sins are not upon Jesus, they're upon yourself. They're either on him or they're on you. And here, Ellen White overtly states, sins are either on Satan or on you. It's pretty horrifying. She clearly says Satan bears the penalty for the sins of those who are saved. And I think that this is related to their doctrine on the nature of man. Absolutely. They actually don't hold humans responsible for their own sin. It's Satan. They're vulnerable victims who have fallen prey to Satan's deceptions. And so ultimately, of course, Satan should be the one that pays for their sins. None of what they believe about humanity, about salvation, about God comes from scripture alone. That's why we say you can't actually believe any of the fundamental beliefs of Adventism without believing in Ellen White and her teachings. That's true. Because they're all together the same. Absolutely. It is a false gospel, a very cohesive one, I might add. Mm -hmm. It's a false soteriology. It's a false nature of man. It's a false Jesus. There is nothing. It is a shimmer. It is a great deception. It looks like a mirage in the distance of beauty and loveliness. And when you look at it closely, Satan's at the heart of it. There's no way around that fact. And this doctrine, more than, more than any other at this point, is making that very clear. So, Satan is the Adventist scapegoat, and he's bound on earth no one else is there. All of the saints are up in heaven going over the books. And they say, those whom Christ raises in the first resurrection will reign with him for a thousand years. And I want to ask who they're reigning over. Yes. They're all in heaven. And they're all, if they're there, it's because they're reigning. That's <laughs> right. right. I mean, who is there to reign over? Unless we're going to start getting into some of their extraterrestrial ideas right. about other worlds and other beings. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. This looks like a hole to me. I can't figure out who they're reigning over. They do say in this chapter, in what sense can the saints be said to reign if they're in heaven and all the wicked are dead? And here comes their rationalizing. 
their reign will consist of involvement in an important phase of Christ's governing. And then they go on to explain that John saw during the millennium that the saints would be involved in judgment, that they sat on thrones and judgment was committed to them, Revelation 20, verse 4. This is the time of the judgment of Satan and his angels that Scripture notes in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6. It's the time Paul's declaration that the saints would judge the world and even the angels will come to pass. This is entirely speculation. This is entirely taking their little proof text out of context and making a reason for what Ellen White said. They're contradicting the clear word of Scripture. Judging and reigning over the nations does not mean what Adventism is making it say. They're now going to say that their judging and reigning is actually looking over the records of the sins of Satan and his angels and the wicked dead who have not yet been raised, who are conveniently under the ground on an empty earth while Satan is apparently bound in the abyss of an empty earth. And just by the way, when Adventism says that the empty earth is the abyss where Satan is bound, they are ignoring the context of the rest of Scripture. Abyss does not mean the earth in any sense, ever. It's the same word that the demons in the demoniac at the Gadarenes said to Jesus when he cast the demons out of the demoniac among the tombs, and they said, oh, don't send us into the abyss before our time. Let us go into the pigs. The abyss is the place where God sends Satan and his angels for final judgment. The demons know what the abyss is. It's not the earth. Those demons were on an inhabited earth and asked Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Same word where Satan is bound in Revelation 20 verse 1. He's not on earth. More evidence that Adventism does not hold together with a consistent hermeneutic. You know, I found it interesting as I was reading that section about all of us getting our questions answered and determining that actually God is fair. And it just, it made me reflect on Eden when Satan questioned God. You know, did he really say this? Mm -hmm. Is this really good for you? You know, he wants you to not know good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll know more. This appeal to entice the human imagination against God. And I feel like that's what's happening here. Like they've taken that mantle and they're saying, is God fair? Did he do the right thing? Well, he's going to prove himself to you. It's not the God I read about in the Bible. Not at all. And then there was Satan's great timeout. (laughs) (laughs) This made me laugh. It says, he's forced to view the results of his rebellion against God and his law. He must contemplate the part he has played in the controversy between good and evil. He can look to the future only with fear for the dreadful penalty he must suffer because of the evil for which he is responsible. This is his great time out. Yes. The millennium. Mm -hmm. And you know what? We are not told the story of Satan. The Bible doesn't tell us what he thinks, or what he's doing, or what will happen to him. Scripture tells us what Jesus has done for us as sinners, and he lets us know what our response is to be. When we hear the gospel of our salvation, we are to believe. But Ellen went far beyond Scripture Mm -hmm. and speculated all sorts of things, such as 
Satan had a chance to repent. Jesus dealt with him and pled with him, but he refused to repent. And now she's reading his thoughts, his supposed thoughts, while he's stuck on an empty earth, contemplating his sin and contemplating his future punishment. Poor Satan, I want to say. Once again, he's the tragic hero. Once again, he is front and center in this doctrine of the millennium. Scripture has the millennium being the most glorious future to which the bride of Christ is looking forward. He catches us up to reign with him. For a thousand years, Revelation 20 is very clear that the millennium, however you see it or however you view the timing, is on earth, reigning over the nations. But no, Ellen White makes it something completely different, and she places Satan at the center of the story. Yeah, when I became a Christian, I couldn't believe how shockingly little there is in Scripture about Satan, because so much of what she wrote was detailing his thoughts, even. Mm -hmm. When you go back and you read her story of origins in the war in heaven, you can find all kinds of information about what he was thinking and feeling. Oh my. And everything about salvation, everything about the saved, the lost, everything about Jesus, everything that the Bible tells us is true. She had to fix and alter and interpret to uphold that story of origins, which is nowhere found in Scripture. It's a false story. And you know, if you're out on an ocean in a boat, you set your compass, you set your directions one degree off, you end up in a completely different destination. And that's what's happened with Adventism. They are going a different direction. They're not going where the Bible leads, and they're ending up in the wrong place. And one might argue that they started in the wrong place. I would agree. I would agree. So after we read about Satan being bound on earth in his great time out, they take (laughs) us to uh, the return of the saints, and they say the city descends, and the dead who are not saved, who are not in Christ, are going to be resurrected, and they're going to be punished. And they say that at this time, Satan is going to be able to deceive all of the wicked who've now been resurrected, and they are going to come against the city of God that's descended from heaven. And they say the fact that the wicked, as soon as God gives them life again, turn against him and attempt to overthrow his kingdom, confirms the decision he's made about their fate. In this way, his name and character which Satan has sought to besmirch, will be fully vindicated before all. That's unbelievable. (laughs) So Satan and all of the resurrected dead are going to vindicate God's character. There you go. The evil, ultimately, the evil has the last word again, even in affirming God. It's unbelievable, not to mention the fact that this holy city that she describes them attacking, she says has descended from heaven. According to Revelation 20, the holy city has not descended from heaven yet. We are on an inhabited earth with Jesus and his saints ruling over the nations, and the evil ones with an unbound Satan come and surround the camp of the saints. But that's not what Ellen is describing. And it's also interesting that she moves from this attempted rebellion against the supposed holy city, which is supposedly descended, and she moves right into her version of the great white throne judgment. 
Now, to be sure, Revelation 20 ends with the great white throne judgment, the judgment of the wicked, the judging of Satan and casting him into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already are. But this book describes this phenomenon this way. Why does God raise these people to life only to end their existence again? During the millennium, the redeemed have had an opportunity to examine the justice of God's treatment of every intelligent being in the universe. Now, the lost themselves, including Satan and his angels, will confirm the justice of God's ways. And this judgment, where they're confirming the justice of God's ways, is at the great white throne, where God's throne is there and the evil of the wicked is on display for everyone to see. And the book here says, those who receive eternal life will have an unshakable faith in him. Never again will sin mar the universe or wreak havoc on its inhabitants. What they're saying here is beyond belief, really. I did not even think of it this way myself as an Adventist, but this is where it leads and this is what the book says. The great white throne judgment is where the sins of the wicked will be made plain, where the righteous will be vindicated, and because of this judgment, which the Bible makes it really clear that the great white throne judgment is only for the wicked, those who receive eternal life because of this will have unshakable faith in him. In other words, watching the wicked attack the holy city, watching them be judged at the great white throne so that their evil is clear, that is what will give the righteous unshakable faith. It's just backwards. And I want to say also that it's not surprising we had such a strange view of the end and of the final judgment and of the fact that we could never be sure we were saved. Because Ellen wrote stuff about the great white throne judgment. She made it clear everybody was going to be there. In fact, she actually made it sound like a time when we could all meet and have a wonderful and tender reunion. And here is a little bit of quote from the fifth volume of her Testimonies for the Church. She says, Do not try to teach others, nor to see how widely you can differ from your brethren, but try to see how near you can come to them, how fully you can be in harmony with them, while doing all that you can on your part to perfect Christian character— Give your heart to God for him to mold according to his pleasure. He will help you. I know he will. May God bless you and your dear children, and may I meet you all around the great white throne is my prayer. (laughs) Uh, Nikki, I do not want to meet anyone around the great white throne. If I do, I will not be saved, according to Revelation 20. The righteous have no part in the judgment. The righteous have no part in the second death. The great white throne judgment is for judging evil, not those who are saved. Yeah, and I know this is probably really confusing for people who haven't heard this before, those of us anyways who've come out of an Adventist background, because we do have those passages in Scripture that talk about us giving an account for the things that we've done. And we see Jesus talking about rewards, but that's a different judgment. That's the Bema Seat judgment, and that's also a different podcast. That's true. <laughs> but but I think it's important to know that there is the judgment where believers will stand before the Lord to receive the rewards. That's in 1 Corinthians 3. Mm-hmm. And Paul also makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 3 that true believers whose works are judged, some are, some are retained and rewarded, and others are burned as with fire, but 
the true believers whose works are judged are not themselves being judged because it says the person himself will still be saved, even though as through passing through the flames. We were taught that that judgment was the same thing as the great white throne and that if our works were burned, we would lose salvation. But Paul is really clear that if we're born again and we belong to the Lord Jesus, if we have works that fell short of being for his kingdom, those works will be burned up, but we ourselves will be saved. We do not appear at the great white throne with the wicked. And I think it's important to remember that fundamental belief number 24 stated that the end of this executive phase of judgment was the completion of the atonement. The completion is at the end of all things after the millennium. So I want to say this, some people who don't completely understand the Adventist teaching of the millennium, not like I think very many people fully understand it because it is convoluted, but I have heard Christians say, well, Adventists are premillennial at least. Mm-hmm. They do believe Jesus catches up believers before the millennium, but their millennium is unbiblical. Their millennium is a false event. It doesn't exist. Their millennium is in heaven for the purpose of continuing judgment and for the purpose of completing the atonement. It cannot be accurately stated that Adventists are premillennial because the biblical millennium is not for judgment of the saved. The millennium, according to the Bible, includes people still coming to faith with the Lord Jesus reigning over the nations. Well, this chapter finally ends with the typical Adventist explanation of the lake of fire. They make it very, very clear that the wicked, including Satan, are annihilated. They will suffer differing amounts of time depending on the severity of their sins. Satan will suffer the longest. But they really stress that this is not going to be an eternal punishment, and it is not going to be conscious eternally. And they have a rather um, convoluted explanation. They say this, Once the wicked, Satan, evil angels, and impenitent people are all destroyed by fire, both root and branch, there will be no further use for death or Hades. See chapter 26. These also God will eternally destroy. So the Bible makes very clear, still quoting, that the punishment, not the punishing, is everlasting. It's the second death. From this punishment, there is no resurrection. Its effects are eternal. And then it goes on and says, the full penalty of God's law having been executed, the demands of justice are satisfied. And now heaven and earth proclaim the righteousness of the Lord. Now, that is just wordplay. To try to parse between eternal punishment and eternal punishing is a false dichotomy. Punishing is a verb. Eternal punishing is a verb. You can't use eternal punishing to substitute for the noun eternal punishment and say they mean completely different things. The word punishment is a noun. It describes a thing. It describes a thing where a person or a being is conscious, is aware of something happening to him. Annihilation does not describe eternal punishment. Punishment has to have awareness. Annihilation has none. It's illegitimate to try to make the argument that eternal punishing doesn't happen, but eternal punishment does. Adventists argue that God will send fire from heaven to burn up all the wicked at the end of the great white throne judgment and to destroy all traces of sin from the universe. 
after that burn, there'll be nothing left of the wicked or of sin. And they say that that annihilation of the wicked is eternal punishment. Yet, that's not what punishment is. So, the argument is a false argument. And it's important to remember that Jesus is the one who said, the righteous go into eternal life, but the wicked will go into eternal fire. Now, this book tries to argue the differences between eternal and forever and say that it's all dependent upon what is being described. The fact is the words mean what the words say. And here's the thing. The Bible repeatedly says that our God is a consuming fire, that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God himself is the one who is in charge of hell. He is the one who alone knows exactly what it looks like and exactly what it is, but it is God the Son who told us that the wicked go into eternal fire. It's also important to remember that the Adventist version of death, which means ceasing to exist, is never described that way in Scripture, because all of us are born dead in sin. And that means we have living bodies with dead spirits, and we are dead even though we're living and walking. We're condemned to death when we are born, and we pass out of condemnation when we believe, John 3, 18. The Adventist description of annihilation does not fit anything the Bible says about eternal punishment. After unpacking a lot of Adventism, I remember finding it pretty funny that they use Revelation 14 to say that they are the remnant church, and they go through the three angels of that chapter and their messages and say, this is our gospel. But they leave out this section in that chapter that says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So you get to hear about the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments and the faith of Jesus, but they leave out this section on these people being thrown into the lake of fire and the smoke of their torment going up day and night. They make the argument that that smoke is just a reminder that they had been annihilated, but it says right after that in this chapter that they have no rest day or night. And we have the same picture when the dragon is thrown in the lake of fire in Revelation 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, it's really interesting that in Revelation 20, it says that they are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the repeated texts throughout Scripture that refer to God as a consuming fire, we don't know how any of this will look. But we can know this. Everything that exists is under the control of God. And if God is a consuming fire, I can't think of anything more horrific than to be in His presence without being able to be His, to be spiritually dead and unable to know Him. That would be devastating. And whatever hell is, we can't assume it's annihilation. 
That is a teaching that is designed to make people not believe God is sovereign, God is holy, and God will keep His word. It's a way to ultimately put our hope back on the idea that Satan pays the final price, Satan is destroyed for our sin, and we really don't have to worry about it because poor Satan is the one who's going to be our scapegoat and who's going to be punished for us. It completely eclipses what Jesus did at the cross and the fact that if we do not trust him, our sins are on ourselves. If we trust him, we pass from death to life. So as we end this next to the last chapter, this next to the last fundamental belief on the millennium and the end of sin, I just have to say this. Adventism has this wrong. Adventism places the end of sin on their idea that Satan bears away the sins and is punished for them, and that those who are saved will be convinced, mentally convinced of the knowledge that God is fair and God is just, so we will not launch into sin in the future. The book even says right near the end of the chapter, in God's presence, the guilt they feel because of the sins they have committed, meaning the wicked, will cause them to suffer an indescribable agony, and the greater the guilt, the greater the agony Satan, the instigator and promoter of sin, will suffer the most. The book even says that God will satisfy all our doubts if we are saved about his fairness and about why some people are not saved. And it says that kind of doubt lies at the very base of sin. To lay to rest forever any occasion for such doubts and to ensure that sin will never rise again, God will provide the answers to these questions during this review phase of the millennial judgment. And I want to say, that is never the assurance that sin will not rise again. Sin will not rise again, if we want to use that word, which was an Ellen White phrase, because of Jesus' blood. Hebrews 7 tells us, that he lives forever to make intercession for us. We will always be secure if we have trusted Christ because of his blood, which paid for our sin. He will always carry the marks of his crucifixion in his body. We will always see our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, with scars in his hands that come from our sin that he took in his body and hung on the tree. We have eternal security when we trust Jesus because he paid for sin. We are never involved in keeping sin from rising again. God doesn't satisfy eternity by making us intrinsically good and unable to doubt. No, he has settled forever the issue of sin in the blood of his Savior, and he has given us new life in him, his resurrection life when we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you haven't trusted him, we urge you to do so. We are born dead in sin, and we must be made alive. And Jesus freely offers us his grace, his forgiveness, his justification, if we will trust what he has already done in completing the atonement. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit proclamationmagazine.com to view our past online articles and to sign up for our weekly emails containing ministry news and new articles every week. You can also find a donate tab there if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support. 
Follow us and like us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we conclude this book with fundamental belief number 28 on the new earth. See you then.